Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by Fuller Landau Montreal. I'm Orla Johannes in for Dan Delmar, and I'm here with co-host Mike Newton. Now today, our guest is going to be Richard Morin, VP and co-founder of Zora Biocosmetics. We'll also speak with our Fuller Landau Montreal expert, Carlo Lupo, about various tax matters. But first, our news and notes chat with Mike. Now, Mike, as we know, this year has accelerated digital transformation across many sectors. And I also think that we've seen how resilient employees can be and how they are the backbone to a great company. So this has also shown us how crucial a company's workforce is to business recovery. So Mike, I put the question to you, how are companies planning to attract, retain, and, you know, manage their talent going forward? Thanks, Ola. Good, uh, good to be on air with you. This is, this is a first for the two of us together, so it's yes. a pleasure. Um, look, this is, this is a, a loaded question that, you know, obviously we could take in about 12 different directions at this point, and this is going to touch on, uh, first and foremost, I guess, bringing our employees back and what is it the employees want. So you've got two facets to this conversation. You've got the immediate employees that you currently have and what are implications of future employees going to look like uh, and what are they going to want in time. And, and, and this is, you know, for the probably the first time there's, there, as, as we've dealt for the last 15 months, there's no playbook to any of this. So it really is kind of walking in the dark, trying to, uh, to find a way to, to keep people happy, which ultimately at the end of the day means there's an ongoing conversation that we really need to be having between your HR departments or your outsourced HR, uh, as well as, you know, a committee of employees coming back. Uh, and, you know, I'd love to say that this doesn't affect us, but uh, at Full Orlando, we have the FL Full Orlando, the same questions going on right now. What are people people going to want? And, and it's very interesting, you know, it's, you know, employees are going to continually to want flexible options. Now, again, you got to look at the industry that you're in. You've got to look at what that means. It's nice to say flexible op options in a professional environment. Not so easy to have flexible options when the majority of your employees are on the assembly line floor and are producing uh, something that they can't make from home. All right. So this ability to be flexible, this ability to, you know, stop and start throughout the day to look after children, to deal with certain things, to, you know, start at six instead of 9am to in order to get everything in. So these will continue to baffle us, I guess, as we go forward, as we try to find, but it means that our policies are going to have to be flexible as well as providing flexibility. So, you know, think of that as kind of a double-edged sword at the end of the day, when you're looking at providing a flexible environment, but you're also looking at providing flexibility flexibility within a flexible environment, right? Um, you know, a little bit more complicated. Um, I think employees are going to want to reimagine how in productivity is measured. And, and, and I think this is an ongoing uh, discussion that started prior to the pandemic, but like many things was dra dramatically accelerated is, you know, we're defining success, which used to be very simple. It was bottom line. Okay. It's no longer necessarily the only discussion. And Dan and I have, have touched on this in the past and clearly him and I have not found the solution yet. Uh, and the other, <laughs> which shocks me at the end of the day, I know, I know you're as baffled as I am in this discussion. Um, but employees also, you know, they're going to want to decide, you know, is it their input that counts 
or is it the productivity and the output that counts? Now, in certain industries, in certain environments, again, it's easier said than done. You know, if you're making widgets on an assembly floor, you can, you can measure output based on quality control, based on speed. You know, there's a whole bunch of measures. The professional firm environment isn't so simple at the end of the day. I mean, we, most of us were brought up under the almighty chargeable hour, which ultimately at the end of the day, and I always like to joke that, you know, accountants, lawyers, and engineers have been rewarded for being inefficient because the higher the hours, the bigger the fee at the end of the day. Uh, so, you know, I dare say that not only are our employees looking for this, but I think clients are looking for this solution, but really it's the productivity that, that, that is going to try and be measured. And, and we haven't yet followed. It's one of the discussions we're having even internally for ourselves before we even try and address this externally. But people are gonna to wanna to know because if they can get the productivity done in a limited amount of time, why should they be bound to sitting at a desk or providing a certain number of hours if they're producing the productivity? You know, We've always made synonymous with your input with effort. And Absolutely. if you happen to be somebody who produces much slower than somebody else, in theory, you're penalizing somebody who is much more efficient. Right. So I've right. always said an hour does not equal an hour does not equal an hour. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's also um, it comes down to as you know, a person looking for a job, not necessarily from the company looking for an employee, but, you know, somebody looking for a job, knowing that the company they're approaching has good communication channels. They are interested in what the employee wants. Yeah, so the communication channel is 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 obviously an ongoing battle that, you know, for as long as, you know, I've been doing this for 32 or 33 years now, and communication has always been an issue. I think it's it has moved from the onus of the employee to now the onus, onus of the employer for the communication. Uh, the issue that we are now raised with when we sent everybody home and provided them a multitude of uh, communication channels as to how to communicate with them. How, how are we going to do this? What do you need? What do you want? This completely open and transparent dialogue right, has now right. found us sitting at our desks, okay, with the cell phone ringing, Teams <laughs> ringing, Zoom ringing, uh, an email <laughs> coming in and a text going with everybody on the other end going, why aren't you answering me? Right. Okay. And right. at the same token, how do you get the message out? Do you get it out by email? Do you get it out by Zoom? Some people are, you know, religious under teams. Other people, which is traditionally those of us that are a little bit older, hesitate on teams because it's one of those mechanisms that means, you know, when I'm free and when I'm not free. And you know what? I'm not always happy with that discussion. So, you know, it, it, it's a challenge. It is. And that brings me to my next um, talk topic I'd like to talk to you about, about the shift, the rapid shift to hybrid work and the challenges with digital communication that employees are facing these days, Mike. Yeah, it's it, it's a complete bar, uh, barrage of, of communication. And the problem we have in many cases is, you know, because <laughs> those of us that have been around for a long time will inevitably say to you that we have increased communication probably a thousand fold from where it was 20 years ago. And I will say to you, it's still not enough. Okay, so, you know, how do you get that out there? How do we create this environment? How do we provide that opportunity? And as you mentioned before, those newer employees that are coming in, you know, you're, you're again, depending on your sector, you're going to continue to have this potential uh, differentiation between organizations for those that go back to pre-COVID approach. 
Right. And those that, you know, have learned or have changed during COVID or because of COVID as to what that looks like going forward. And I think you've got a lot more discretionary and a lot more discerning employees out there today. Uh, and as much as, you know, most employers like to think, hey, everybody should be happy to have a job. Uh, I got to tell you, that's really not the way most employees are looking at it at this point. And they have a limited number of hours in the day and they want to make sure they're spending them properly. You know, the older professionals were brought up. That was your life. Okay, it is, yep. it is no longer the scenario because while people are putting their hours in, they want to be doing philanthropy. They want to spend time with their, their families. They want to be sitting on a terrace that, hey, hey, it's finally opening up again. You know, a lot of these things have now become priority as opposed to the way a lot of other people. So you're now getting a shift in a generational discussion. And we're now starting to see this accelerated from the Zoomers or the Gen Zs that are now pushing the upper limits into the Gen Ys and the millennials in terms of what those expectations are and how it's going to affect them. Again, accelerated by COVID. Yeah. Now I want to switch up gears a bit here. Um, between you and me, Mike, I love going to get my hair done at the salon. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, it's, it, is, it is something that I have not always afforded myself the luxury of. Oh, you know what, Mike? I'm going to have to take you for a trip to my salon. Perfect. But so long as I can get a manicure done. I'm not big on facials, though. <laughs> no problem. Well, I was at the salon the other day, and um, the music was so <laughs> good, Mike, okay? It was uplifting. It was a great beat. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I would love this on my playlist when I'm working out. So I asked the girl and um, in the salon and she told me oh that's the house of artists playlist and I said the salon has its own playlist on Spotify so can you explain to me why a brand should have its own Spotify playlist Mike well I you know the there, there there's probably a, a a big gap between should have and will have and actually knows what you're talking about. Right. So, you know, somewhere in that, somewhere in those three discussions, uh, you know, at this point, uh, the world we're living in, everything is about brand recognition. Everything is about creating an identity that gets to the people that gets to the people that allows them to be able to identify who you are. And you're targeting a group of people who through Spotify have you know, earning potential, earning power, spending power, and, you know, are not just, you know, 15 year olds in high school anymore listening to Spotify, you've got a whole general group of consumers who make their decisions by what they see and what they hear. Okay, and that means it may be in the gym, or it may be in the salon, or it may be somewhere else. So while I have not quite grasped yet the concept of coming up with my own Spotify playlist for the firm, because <laughs> as I've been told in the past, I have some very eclectic music tastes that are not always acceptable to everybody else. Mike, uh, you have to put that on your to-do list for this week. Yes, I want to hear this playlist, <laughs> from this the Fuller Landau yeah. playlist. Yeah, well, no, there's going to be a big difference between the Fuller Landau playlist and the Mike Newton playlist, so be careful. <laughs> Um, which then, of course, brings me to the next conversation is how do you decide what that looks like from right. a brand perspective? Because if that is going to be your message, you know, what is it representing? You know, as much as we have a lovely debate over what should go on Instagram, okay, music now takes on a whole different taste and a whole different perspective. And music means so many things and evokes so many emotions, right. more so in many cases than even pictures. You know, so that 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 identity brand that comes with a Spotify playlist, and I dare say there may be four or five playlists within an organization. 
Now, our guest today is Richard Morin, Vice President and Co-Founder of Zora Biocosmetics. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you, Orla. So tell us a bit about Zora Biocosmetics and where the idea originated from. The idea of the project Zora started out about 16 years ago when Melissa Harvey, the co-founder and actual president of the company, uh, went to work as a volunteer worker in Morocco. She was welcomed there by uh, uh, cooperatives of Berber women. Uh, they're actually the ones that are producing this incredible oil that's called the Argan oil. Maybe you've heard of it. Oh, and yes. <laughs> I'm sure you did, or like, because you like cosmetics. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Um, but Melissa, you have to know that these co-ops are very special places. They are uh, like these uh, very special places where these women can actually make a decent living and send their kids to school. And, and uh, they can also, you know, uh, at night, these co-ops transform themselves into schools so they can learn whatever, read, write, accounting, computering, anything. So these are very, they're, they're, they're founded by the, the UNESCO, among other things which are supporting this whole movement, the cooperative movement. So when Melissa got there uh, 16 years ago, she basically fell in love with these, uh, with these very courageous women. And in turn, they fell in love with them, with her. So she stayed there about a year. And at the end of the year, uh, they ran into a major issue. They just couldn't uh, afford their rent anymore. And they couldn't sell their oil. So Melissa said, uh, okay, I'm going to buy the oil. <laughs> but she didn't have any money, but it doesn't stop Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> She still, she bought it, uh, like 200 kilos, and she brought it back to Montreal. And this is how it all started out, with the idea of helping out these women. And we're proud to say that 16 years after, we're still doing business with the same co-op and others because we grew a lot. So, yeah. Um, uh, and right now we have, uh, we started out uh, 14 years ago when it took two years of research and development, actually, to come up with the first four products. Uh, we had to work, we're working with a, a, a bunch of uh, biochemists, uh, they're the greatest biochemists you could find in the cosmetic industry. And uh, we came, our, our goal, our, our goal was really to make the best skincare products and cosmetics using only uh, certified organic ingredients uh, without endangering the earth or the environment and or through a fair trade process. So we, we brought all these values with us into Zora Biocosmetic and turned out pretty fine. Now we have 65 products, we sell in four countries. We're doing pretty well. And we're the only high-end skincare line that's certified organic by EcoSurge in Canada. So Richard, I'm gonna contextualize this for you. Uh, I cut my COVID hair because it was getting too long and took me more than 15 seconds to get ready in the morning. So <laughs> you're gonna excuse where I place myself in this conversation and my ability to navigate the cosmetics world. Um, but I guess explain to us the process of being registered as bio, uh, bio organic or biocosmetic to you know those people out there that don't use these products and what the difference is in the manufacturing process and the sourcing and how you go about sourcing. I mean, obviously, this is not just only um, you know the 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 argan oils. It's there, there's a process involved here. How do you maintain your standards and how do you get qualified? I think it's the first time I'm publicly asked this question, and it's probably the 150th time that I want to answer this question. <laughs> uh, 
having a certification on the market right now, you will see this a lot because the green products are very trendy right now. So you will see people saying we're all natural, we have organic products, blah, 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 blah. So why are we looking for a certification? Why, are we, why do we insist so much? Or why do we impose ourselves with all these limitations and difficulties to have uh, such a, a, a certification? That's because in Canada, you have to know that the word organic is not a regular, um, it's not a, um, uh, you, don't, you, you can't not use the word organic in the food industry, but you can use it as much as you want in the cosmetic industry. So this is how you have this whole green washing industry. So this is how, uh, like most people, most competitors that we have, they just uh, put two drops of anything organic into their products and they will just put the word organic on their, on, their, on their box. And they will say, there you go, organic. This is why we are certified because being certified is two things. It's what you put in it and what you do not put in it. So it's really the ingredients that you use and the ingredients that you do not use. And believe me, the list of ingredients that you cannot use is much bigger <laughs> than the list of ingredients that you can use, which forces you, or us in this case, to develop new ingredients to be able to compete with the best products on the market, but without uh, using these forbidden ingredients. So this is really a big difference. We keep saying this to everyone saying, when somebody's telling you on the face of the product that they are organic, turn the product around and go read the back of the box to say, if you, if you find this certification, say, yes, we are. Because it's not only it's not only the ingredients. It's really uh, it's much bigger than this. It's a philosophy that's behind the production of these type of, of, of skincare products. It's protection of the earth, protection of the environment, but also protection of the wildlife, uh, protection of the, uh, the, the, the the trees, and you know. So it's it's much. It has a much broader perspective when you have this this little logo that says yes, this product is certified. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> oh, I'm not done. I'm not done yet with this topic because it fascinates me. Yes. I know some of the process and the organic in terms of uh, the soil process, in terms of farming and everything else. But it, most of my exposure has always been in the Canadian environment, right? And and, and we know the Canadian standards are you know are, are one set. I mean, you're dealing with organic sourcing right? In your products from argan oil and from coming from Mexico or, or, I mean, in this case, it's Mexico, but in general, how do you control the organic component of what's being imported from a country whose standards may be very different than what ours are? And, you know, how does that play into how you determine the standard that you want to achieve going forward? Another very good question. That's why we deal with most uh, certification organizations. Uh, that are international and they carry the same standards whether you are in Thailand or Mexico or Indonesia or in Canada. So if you want to have your ingredients certified by let's say EcoCert or it could be QAI or it could be um, uh, AB or it could be, I'm not going to name them all, but these international uh, certification agencies, they carry the same standards, does not matter where you are. Uh, and this is how we can, we know we can rely on this. Because if you look at it the other way, Mike, what's the, what's the other option? The other option is you could just say it's organic. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't, you could just say it. And, and unfortunately, that's mostly what you see on the market. Say, I, you know, I put two drops of something organic, so it's organic. This is it. So I'm not saying that all of these organizations throughout the world are 100% 
full bulletproof. All I'm saying is that it's much better to have these type of certifications than nothing. So in, I, in terms of having a proof that it, the, the product is good or certified organic. So I would assume then, given Canadian standards being part of the international and just in general, the Canadian standards being higher, your ability to export is just is not limited then. You are already at the top of the game in terms of organic standards. About, well, from a perspective, yes. We still have to go through all the uh, uh, national health organization like uh, Santé Canada, Health Canada, or uh, the FDA or whatever. We have to comply with their rules, of course. But from an organic standard, I could sell my products in Japan or Germany or wherever, and it's all the same because we comply with the same uh, processes and the same standards. So we're going to, a little bit later on in the show, we're going to get to uh, Carlo Lupo, who's going to discuss R&D. Um, but I think it's the, it's the one question I want to ask you, because I'm fascinated in the sense that I've been involved in a lot of R&D uh, projects for clients that have been rather limited, obviously, into, into coming up with organic or certifiable side of things. You know, how much would you, if you were to look at your R&D time and, and the efforts that have been put in, how much go to meeting a new product and how much go into meeting the standards from an R&D perspective of the organic bio certifiable component. Um, and, you know, it's not like making widgets or shoes at the end of the day. I mean, you've got standards here that you have to meet in both components. And you're saying it, that's it, 50-50. That's really the easy answer. Thanks, Richard. Richard, when it comes to argan oil, what exactly are the benefits that, you know, that people are going crazy over? Um, yes, argan oil is a vegetable oil that comes off of the argan tree. The argan tree only grows in Morocco. That's why we're talking about these Moroccan ladies a few minutes ago. Right. Um, argan oil is the richest oil, vegetable oil in antioxidants. So you have seven times more antioxidants in argan oil than you do in, for example, olive oil. Uh -huh. so making cosmetics with such a basic product is just a gift. That's why we all want to use it. Of course, there's always a difference yeah, about do you make your, uh, your, your skincare products based on this oil or do you add the oil? What we do at Zora is we use it as for raw materials. So we transform the oil into a skincare product or into a cosmetic product uh, from whatever our needs. So we what we call in chemistry, what we call the excipient of, a, a, of the product itself is very rich in antioxidant and in, uh, in also, but also in, in uh, many other vitamins and essential minerals that we need. Oh yeah, I mean, I love using argan oil, whether it's on my skin, my hair, it's fantastic. You could use it pure. And you know, work, but if you work it out in a lab, you can actually extract all these incredible benefits from it and directly inject them or use them as your basis for other creams. So you get something extremely rich, extremely efficient, yeah, you know, very, very attractive. Mike, you have to try some. I was going to say that, you know, I'm listening to this conversation going, wow, am I on the outside looking in? Because <laughs> I'm not sure I really know what the benefits are. Not, I'm not even sure I could have spelled it before, uh, <laughs> before the show tonight. But, uh, uh, you know, obviously the... Uh, the direction is going, I'm going to shift it now because the reality is, is uh, clearly my face is not glowing and I'm not sitting in, you know, in that environment. So we're going to go to something I do understand, which is 
how do you market the product? How do you move forward? How do you determine at the end of the day how to spend your resources? You know, cosmetics, I'm sure most of the guys sitting out there are going, cosmetic company, how does this apply to me? Why am I listening? And other than the fact that my wife's going to say to me, go get me something that makes me look better, uh, you know full well, that's one of those things in life you do not buy on your own as a guy. So go ahead, give me a little bit of how you target your market at the end of the day. There's so many things in your question, Mike. <laughs> that, that's that's, that's usually where I end up with, so I can keep you going for a while. Let's focus on, on something. There is no two or three or five different markets. There's only one market for the cosmetics industry. And whatever you're coming with a, an organic product or a synthetic product or whatever product you're coming up with, you're going to, you will have to fight on the same market. So you will have to use the same marketing uh, tools that are at your disposal. Uh, in this case, uh, in this modern world for an SMB like Zora Bio Cosmetic, we're using um, uh, internet with a strong internet presence, uh, lots of on-site uh, uh, demos. Uh, we're using all of, all of our uh, potential uh, image. What I mean by that is that we, we carry very strong values and because when we started out this business, we really wanted to make a difference. That's the whole idea, not just another company, but something that will make a difference. Our, our goal is very simple. We want to be so popular that we are going to put so much pressure on just everyone in this industry. That eventually, they will have to clean their products just to stay at the level of where we are. So we're working very hard into this. So we took these values and we added them into our marketing presentation. So when we sell the image of Zora, what we do sell is really our values. We do sell our, uh, our perspective on the world. We do sell our uh, fair trade business. We sell our organic. Uh, we, sell, we sell all of these things. And, and it does touch a certain number of people, a growing number of people, a growing number of customers, more and more attracted towards this kind of product. Yeah, because I think initially when, when, when the bio uh, market started to develop and whether that was cosmetics or whether it was, you know, organic foods or whatever, you, you were hitting, you were competing within its own sector because you had people that looked for organic for a special reason. I think you are now uh, competing directly with not only other organic and, and uh, bio companies, but you're also de dealing with mainstream at price points, at quality. Uh, do you still have the luxury of being more expensive with with an organic product than before. I mean, I know I walked into why, you know, organic bananas and they were always twice the price of regular bananas. Why? Because it was organic. Is this still something that you deal with? Short answer is no, we don't have this luxury anymore. You are totally right. Uh, a few years back, uh, organic products or even natural products were sold to a specific number of people, <laughs> to a specific number of stores. And, but we're going, like, we're going now a mass market. So you can find our products now in all of the uh, drugstores. You can find our, our products everywhere uh, because of this reason. So we're touching a greater number of people. So no, we, can, we don't have this luxury anymore. So in order to come up, but our costs are higher for reasons that I explained earlier. Right. So we need to come up with very creative and <laughs> very creative marketing ways in order to uh, sell a product to the same price point as an equivalent product, but carrying a very uh, natural product, natural certification. So it sounds to me like you've had to change your manufacturing process and not necessarily differentiate yourself at a higher price point in order to compete. What effect has that had on the manufacturing process? 
well, we we uh, we we just reached the 21st century. <laughs> so no, I mean that's it. We've bought uh, some very modern machines. Uh, we have a full AI helping us producing internally. We have uh, uh, we're very we're extremely robotized. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, roboticized, I guess, is the proper English word. Don't ask me to spell it. Uh, uh, you'll, be, you'll be amazed uh, if you ever come and I'm inviting you to come and visit your plant. I mean, everything is done for computer. <laughs> so we are, uh, we, we, we did save a lot on the manufacturing process in order to be able to compete at this same level uh, with our synthetic competitors. So how, how, how did you move from that environment? I mean, it's nice to say, yes, we went into the 21st century. I mean, there's a massive capital investment involved to getting equipment and proper manufacturing processes. And, and how did you take what was, you know, been successful and move it into a new market, take on that risk? Did you have existing capital? Did you just happen to have really deep pockets? Or were you looking in the, in the capital markets in order to obtain additional financing? <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Uh, we, we we did what we had to do, so we went to uh, investors uh, and we took the money where uh, where we could find it. Actually, we sold our project to people, and it was strangely said very easy to do. People believed in this project from day one, and we still have lots of people supporting us, helping us out because you know it's it's just a great project which is to bring to the world something different in terms of cosmetics in our case. But yeah, that's it. And you know, we, 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 are a, we are carrying a lot of change within our products and people want to be part of this. So it's, it was pretty easy to find actually. So what, what's the mix between your national sales and international sales at the end? And, and has that changed dramatically since once you started? Well, we started from zero to one hundred percent, but that was yes, okay. Like so that's a, that's that that's a clearer number, but there might be a mix somewhere in between. So, <laughs> yeah, right now it's more like uh, 80, 20, uh, 80 percent being uh, national and twenty percent being international. But of course, uh, the expansion uh, is doing is doing pretty well. So I guess by within the next five years, things will change, and we'll probably reach a 50-50 level within the next five years. So going into a different market, going into a different country is a whole different area. Is your 20% south of the border or is this right now sprinkled around the world and hoping to get traction on? That's it. Spread around the world and we're hoping to get traction on. Excellent. Richard, what is your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? Being an entrepreneur is, uh, is, is not a job. Being an entrepreneur, it's a, it's a, daily, it's a passion. It's, it, it's, it's really an investment through in your life. So my, my only piece of advice right now is make sure if you want to go there to keep a personal space aside from this because entrepreneurship will eat everything, will take everything from you. And it's good. It's, it's not a bad thing because it has so much to give in exchange, right? But right. In order to keep your uh, balance, balance, make yeah. sure you have a personal space beside that. Sports, friends, whatever it is, just keep it for yourself. Richard, that's a great piece of advice. Thank you so much for joining us this week. It was my pleasure, Ola. And coming up, our Fuller Landau expert, Carlo Lupo. Mike, take it away there. What's on the agenda when it comes to Carlo? 
So, Orla, I'm shocked you didn't want to take this uh, tax discussion in uh, in a different direction, but, uh, you know, I'll be happy to go in this. I mean, one of the things, obviously... Mike, that... it was way too much of an exciting conversation discussion yeah, I know, for me, taxes. I know, yeah, just, I know. <laughs> Somebody has to lead this. Thanks. You threw it to me. Um, so, you know, with one of the things we were talking about with Richard is the, this research and development component, or more officially known as scientific research and experimental development, which goes on and many businesses and you know for years Canada has has been one of the leaders in R&D and certainly in the province of Quebec being uh, one of the greatest places in North America to to have R&D so you know I, I think we're going to look to Carlo to give us a little bit of an insight into what that entails from an R&D projects you know you know the the dollars that are available and then obviously what the implications are for a business as they continue to grow uh, and they need to go outside for investors, as Richard was talking about. And let's say they go cross the border or they go outside of Canada for investment. What does that mean? Carlo, I'm, I'm going to let you take it away because there's nobody can, uh, that I can think of that can have this conversation better than you. So go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so I heard a few buzzwords uh, when Richard was uh, talking about his company. I heard uh, research and development. I heard manufacturing, uh, innovation, competition. Um, Scientific research and experimental development is a uh, bread and butter staple of uh, the Canadian uh, landscape. Uh, there's 20,000 claimants a year. Uh, the government pays out over $3 billion uh, in research and development tax credits, all in the um, pursuit of, of advancing technology, uh, researching new processes, really for the purpose of innovating and, and, and maintaining competition on uh, national and global scale. Um, for a Canadian controlled private corporation, that is a, a, a corporation in Canada that is owned majority by Canadian residents, federal tax credit for research and development is 35% for a corporation situated in Quebec, that's an additional 30%. So for a total of 65%, very lucrative. And as you mentioned, um, very incentivizing for corporations that are looking to carry uh, carrying out activities uh, of that nature, and, and especially for corporations on the outside looking in, looking to see where they can carry out this research and development in order to maximize uh, the return on their investment. Now, um, when you have a situation where a corporation is not Canadian controlled, the tax credits are uh, a lot less uh, beneficial. Um, they're only 20% uh, federal and 15% Quebec, but nonetheless, 35% is still uh, a great incentive to looking to wanting to carrying out the R&D activity. The challenge in, in that situation when you have um, majority control uh, being external investors, non-resident uh, investors, is the federal component of the credit becomes non-refundable. Uh, meaning that the only way this credit will be given out is if the corporation has tax to pay. Compare that to when you have a situation where you have a Canadian-controlled corporation where the credits are refundable. So you don't even have to make any money, any tax. You'll just get that money um, as refunded uh, on the eligible expenditures. So the challenge when you have uh, corporations that are looking to expand and looking outside to uh, venture capitalists, uh, angel investors by bringing on uh, a non-resident is maintaining that balance. And, and once you tip the scale where the corporation becomes non-resident, um, the challenge then becomes, I need to have income generated in this corporation and I need to have tax. Now, 
um, the corporation has 20 years to utilize that tax. So really when we have a situation like that, the challenge then becomes, how can we generate tax for the corporation? And usually we're looking to see, can we um, sell that proprietary right? Can we, can we uh, derive a revenue stream by royalties? Can we uh, sell the process? Um, is, is, is there a, a technology uh, for manufacturing that we can uh, develop and, and, um, and um, lease out? So what we're looking to do is to strategize in the long run uh, because there could be significant credits that are uh, accumulated up front, which there's no immediate uh, relief or refund, where the back end of it is really just trying to uh, create a strategy to get that um, uh, get those credits. Quebec is generous, regardless of the situation, they will give you the money. So whether you're a Canadian corporation getting the 35% uh, 30% credit, or whether you're a non-resident corporation, you'll get the 15% credit. So Quebec is a little bit more generous in, in that regards. Um, Richard, you mentioned, uh, Richard mentioned uh, manufacturing um, and, and, and one of the nice incentives that Quebec has, um, there's actually two of them in fact, there's a, a credit that they came out with in 2020 as part of their budget, it's uh, the 3CI tax credit. This is the tax credit for investment and uh, innovations. Uh, really what it, it's looking to do is it's to encourage businesses to um, acquire eligible uh, assets, uh, mainly manufacturing and processing equipment, um, computer software and computer hardware. The tax credit for, for those acquisitions um, are anywhere between uh, 10 and uh, 20%. And as a matter of fact, the current 2021 budget, the Quebec government upped the ante by doubling those credits. So from uh, 20 to 40%. So there's, there is a large incentive for businesses uh, to capitalize on that by making these significant capital expenditures for overhauling their manufacturing process. Certainly, you know, to compete with uh, corporations and, and maintaining a, a competitive advantage, you need to have that incentive in order to fund these capital expenditures. Um, there's another credit in addition to that, which is the IDCI, the incentive for um, uh, incentive for the incentive deduction for commercialization of innovations. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's the IDCI. Really, what it, it is encouraging is uh, the development of intellectual property, um, and, and especially intellectual property in Quebec, where um, any profit that's derived from this intellectual property, we'll see a reduction of taxes from uh, the Quebec corporate rate of 11.5% to 2%. So there's a good encouragement on wanting to um, invest in that avenue uh, because the, the, the amount of tax uh, saved is considerable. Um, where this all mixes with the R&D is corporation needs to carry out R&D. Um, and usually in order to do that, you need to have manufacturing equipment, uh, software, hardware, uh, eligible um, eligible expenditures, such as having key qualified uh, employees. So there's a lot of money that can be made from investing in innovation and, uh, and new technologies and research. Thanks, Carlo. Um, Orla, I hope you were paying attention because there's a quiz coming in a few minutes. Oh, and, no. Don't uh, take do that to me. Don't do that to me. <laughs> What's oh, the come corporate on. tax it sounds rate? Like fun. <laughs> Carlo, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Orla. That's Carlo Lupo, um, tax partner at Fuller Landau, Montreal. I'd also like to thank Richard Morin, vice president and co-founder of Zorro Biocosmetics. And Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting with you today.
Orla, it's been a lot of fun. And if I was Dan, I'd be concerned right now. So uh, thank you so much for your effort. Thank you for your time. And thanks for the personality. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. You guys are amazing. Dan actually will be back for our next episode. And a reminder that you can subscribe to Today's Entrepreneur as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, todaysentrepreneur.org for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. Have a fabulous weekend. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.